Broadcasting live from atop the Rocky Mountains, the crossroads of the West, you are listening to the Liberty Roundtable Radio Talk Show. All right. Happy to have you along, my fellow Americans. Sam Bushman live on your radio. Hard-hitting news the networks refuse to use, no doubt, starts now. This, my fellow Americans, is the broadcast for February the 2nd in the year of our Lord, 2021. This is our one of two and our goal always to protect life, liberty, and property and to promote God, family, and country on your radio and the traditions of our founding fathers. Yes, indeed, ladies and gentlemen, we use the blueprint for liberty, the supreme law of the land, the Constitution for the United States of America as our guide. And absolutely, we're convinced the checks and balances brilliantly put in place by the founding fathers, one of the great peaceful restorative solutions we have at our fingertips. As you know, ladies and gentlemen, we believe the checks and balances put in place by the founding fathers are absolutely brilliant and one of the great peaceful restorative solutions we have. I repeat that because I want you to understand that there is hope in the future, ladies and gentlemen. I want to be very clear about that. I know we live in perilous times. I get it. I know things seem dismal. I understand. But we also reject revolution. We stand for peaceful restoration of the greatest country on the face of the earth. Now, normally, uh, I do a recap of the previous show. I'm going to skip that today. We'll talk about that later in the broadcast or maybe get to that tomorrow. We've got such a, uh, in my opinion, an interesting guest that I want to give the whole hour to this guest. His name is Joseph Lozito. Joe Lozito. You may or may not have even heard of him. This is the story of how I went from being an average Joe to being dubbed the New York City subway hero. It's Joe's story. The New York subway hero, my battle with evil, and the spree killer. It's a paperback that was written in 2014 by Joe. Joe also, believe it or not, does a podcast called Coliseum Chronicles. And uh, the penalty box is the uh, nickname, Coliseum Chronicles, the penalty box. You can find it on Podbeam and on podcast platforms everywhere. And the focus of the show is hockey. Uh, it's talking about enforcers who have played for the New York Islanders organization. Available, of course, on all ma um, major platforms, etc. But here's the deal. Joe was just an average Joe. Pardon the pun there. Uh, living his life, living the dream, if you will, living in New York City. And man, one day it all ran off the rails. I think it was uh, 2011. We'll get into the details in just a second. But before we do, Joe, welcome to Liberty Roundtable Live, sir. Thank you for having me. Uh, I really appreciate you taking an interest in the story, sir. Thank you very much. Now, let me ask you this. Let's talk about your life a little bit before all this went down. Because I know your life has never been the same since. But tell me about Joe. Growing up, who you are, what, you know, give, give me kind of a, a sketch on Joe, will you? Yeah, um, I grew up in Queens, New York, which is uh, one of the boroughs outside of Manhattan. Um, uh, just regular, regular upbringing. You know, uh, my dad went to work. It was in, I was born in 1970, so grew up during the 70s. Dad went to work. Mom stayed home and raised the kids. Um, you know, as I got older, uh, we moved to Long Island uh, as a teenager. Again, nothing. I, I lived a very nondescript life. I always tried to just keep my head down and uh, just go about my day, go about my business. And uh, later on in life, I met the woman of my dreams and uh, we got married, have two wonderful kids. And um, basically the uh, reason I breathe and the reason I live is for my wife and my kids really, uh, to be honest with you, nothing else matters. So uh, average Joe is the perfect phrase for me because I always say I'm just a regular guy with one good story. All right. How'd you get so into hockey? 
I, I've been, I've been uh, well, in Queens, back then, there weren't too many ice rinks out there, so we did a lot of street hockey and everything, and uh, played a lot of street hockey. I was always one of the younger kids on the block, so I played with a lot of the older kids, and uh, just grew up a big Islanders fan, and, um, you know, I appreciate the physical side of the game. I appreciate the fighting that isn't really there anymore, and um, when we moved to Long Island, I, I grew up, you know, I was uh, 14, we were about 10 minutes from Nassau Coliseum, and uh, I say I grew up in that rink. I got to know a lot of people with the organization, a lot of the players, and uh, it just grew from there. So, uh, so I like hockey and and football and uh, you know, combat sports. So, all right. Speaking of combat sports, you uh, watched a lot of MMA fighting as well, right? Yeah, I'm. I'm proud to say that I guess one of the advantages of being an old man like I am, I'm 50, is that uh, you get to see certain things from the from its infancy. You know, nobody around today is going to say they saw the first Major League Baseball game or anything like that. But I am I am proud to say, thanks to my friend Dean, I, I have been watching the UFC since day one. And uh, and uh, I, I always credit it with uh, having a hand and probably saving my life. Wow. Reality TV at its best, huh, sir? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> well, it turned reality for you one fateful day. When was this, 2011? Yeah, it was uh, February 12th, 2011. All right, you wake up, you're what, going to work, normal day? Yeah, normal Saturday morning. And, and uh, actually, to correct one thing you said, at the time, I was living in Philadelphia. Uh, oh, wow, okay. Yeah, uh, I love Philadelphia. I mean, I haven't been there in 10 years, but uh, but we really liked it down there. Um, but, you know, the opportunity to make more money was up in New York, and, uh, you know, it was the best thing for my family. Uh, you know, it, it bugged me a little bit, my commute, because it took time away from them, but uh, financially at the time, it was a sacrifice I had to make. So um, it was just a regular Saturday morning and uh, made my uh, take my commute from Philadelphia to New Jersey, uh, jump on the uh, the train in New Jersey, and that takes me right to Penn Station. Um, uh, that's 34th Street in New York City. And then from Penn Station, I take a subway, which is normally a, about a five-minute subway ride, and it drops me off basically across the street from my job. Uh, that day it didn't go as smoothly, though. All right, we'll get into that in a second. What's your what would be your job in the in these situations? What what were you doing? Well, I work. I still work, uh, even though I haven't worked since May, thanks to some people that around the city and the state. But uh, I work at Lincoln Center. Uh, Lincoln Center, I think people think is one building. It's actually a campus where we have uh, buildings dedicated to the New York City Ballet, the, the Metropolitan Opera, uh, New York Philharmonic. So I work in David Geffen Hall, which is the home of the New York Philharmonic, and I do box office work there. And you've done that for a long time, then. Yeah, I've, I've been in the I've been in the business since 2005. I actually got my start at Madison Square Garden doing the same thing, and uh, this opportunity came up in 2010, and uh, it's been a blessing because I work with some really great people, and uh, it was a good move for us financially. And uh, you know, up until last May, it was uh, one of the best things that ever happened to me. And when you had your experience on the subway, which we're going to dig into hard at the, as we start the next segment, but did they give you any grief at your job related to all the fanfare related to this? No, uh, God, no. Lincoln Center was uh, the my my boss. You know, uh, in particular, my colleagues were very supportive, and Lincoln Center as a whole, as a company, uh, they were amenable to pretty much anything. They understood the. Uh, severity of the situation. I also understood that it was a big news story, so um, they were wonderful. I, I can't even 
begin to thank them enough because they handled everything great. They understood everything, and uh, and they were wonderful. Let me tell you why I wanted to do this story and why I consider you an American hero, Joe. And I, I know that, you know, it's going to be difficult for you to respond to this because, you know, what do you say to people that are saying that kind of stuff, right? I mean, I get it. Yeah. However, it's one thing to take down a subway thug and stop the crimes. It's another to get beat up really, really, really bad in the process and survive. Uh, it's another to uh, carry on as you have done. But to have the attitude of gratitude and appreciation for life and for your wife and your children uh, and your job and the people around you and not have hatred in your heart, but to have respect for police officers in general, uh, et cetera, et cetera, when you've been so wronged on so many levels, uh, it to me is uh, the American hero story, Joe. Well, like you said, I don't, <laughs> thank you. I don't really know what to say about that. I, I never, uh, I never look at myself as a hero. The, the whole New York subway hero thing, that was uh, something created by the media and, you know, I used it in my book because, uh, you know, maybe like the eye catcher type thing. And uh, but I don't I don't consider myself a hero. I, I really just consider myself a guy that was uh, put, in a, put in a position one day and I had to respond. And uh, I'm just uh, to me, I'm just blessed that I'm, every day that I wake up is another gift. You know, uh, February 12th will be actually this February 12th will be 10 years. And to me, I've been given 10 years of gifts every day that I get to wake up and be with my family. So. Uh, like I said, they're the focus of my life. So uh, I could be dead. So I do have a lot of gratitude for the fact that I am I am alive and that, you know, I've had so much support from so many people. So it, it, it's my opportunity to say thank you maybe to a larger audience being on your show. And I really appreciate everybody that has ever sent me a note or a tweet or a text or anything. It, it really means the world to me. Or, ladies and gentlemen, by the book, Incredible Education about our circumstances in life, especially in New York City. We're talking about the New York subway hero, My Battle with Evil and the Spree Killer. It's a book written in 2014 on Amazon now. Check it out. Get your copy today. So, Joe, are you a religious guy? Uh, I believe. I, I don't. For me to say that I'm a religious guy, I think would be doing a disservice to the people who actually put in the work and go to church and, and Sunday and maybe do stuff. For the church, uh, I definitely I, I I'm spiritual. Maybe put it that way. I definitely believe in God. I believe in higher power. Uh, and if I ever had any doubts, uh, that day on the subway would have really squashed those doubts because I 100 percent I believe there was a higher power looking out for me that day. All right. When we get back, I want to learn a little bit more about your wife and how you met her and how she's dealt with a lot of this. Because you know what? We can hear from Joe all day, and we will, and that's great. But I want, I want to know your wife's perspective. Uh, maybe others haven't been able to cover that as much, and I don't, I don't really want to you know, give her too much focus and put her in an uncomfortable situation. But I do know that it takes a – I'll tell you this. It's harder for me to see my wife suffer or my kids yeah. suffer than it is for me to suffer, right? Uh, with Absolutely. that in mind, when we come back – uh, I'll have you respond to that if you don't mind, Joe. Ladies and gentlemen, we're talking about Joe Lazito or Joseph Lazito. We're talking about the story of how he went to, from the average Joe to being the subway hero. But in my opinion, now we're talking about a national hero due to how he's lived his life since so many tragedies have occurred. We'll talk about it on your radio. You know where the solution can be found, Mr. President? in churches, in wedding chapels, in maternity wards across the country, 
and around the world. More babies will mean forward-looking adults, the sort we need to tackle long-term, large-scale problems. American babies in particular are likely going to be wealthier, better educated, and more conservation-minded than children raised in still industrializing countries. As economist Tyler Cowen recently wrote, quote, by having more children, you're making your nation more populous, thus boosting its capacity to solve climate change. The planet does not need for us to think globally and act locally so much as it needs us to think family and act personally. The solution to so many of our problems at all times and in all places is to fall in love, get married, and have some kids. Have we realized the assault against our lives, our liberties, our faith? To defeat this assault, Christians and all people of goodwill should have strategies to prevail in our faith and principles, which are simple. No need for a complex formula. One goal, one aim. A strategy like the heroic Christians of the past. We win, they lose. Nothing less. Big Q, Little Q. The calm before the storm by a friend of Megagoria. The strategy of heaven revealed. Big Q, Little Q. The Calm Before the Storm, available on Amazon.com or by calling Caritas in the U.S. at 205-672-2000. All right, ladies and gentlemen, riding shotgun on the show today, Joe Lozito went from the average Joe to being the New York city subway hero that's the way the media calls it but in my uh summation joe's a hero one for saving his own life and stopping the thug when the cops didn't have the guts to do it uh but more importantly how he's lived his life since that's what really intrigues me his attitude of gratitude and appreciation for life and for those around him uh and you know what we are going to hear from joe and his side of the story for sure in detail we'll let us let him walk us through all that but tell me about your wife's experience through this whole thing. You've been married to her for a long time, right? Yes. I, uh, going back to the hockey aspect, I met my wife at a hockey game, at an Islanders game, now for Coliseum. Uh, we've been, we've been uh, together since 1992. Uh, we've been married since um, 1997. Uh, she blessed me with two sons. And, uh, it, you know, I, I told the story about that day, I don't know, seems like a million times in the last 10 years. And, it, and it's funny. It, it, I, I tell, I give a lot of harrowing details and none of it ever really phases me. The one part that always phases me, the one part that always gets to me is the part where I have to call my wife in the story because I'm calling her from Bellevue Hospital in New York City and she's at home in Philadelphia with my kids who were 10 and 7 at the time. And uh, that that's the part that always gets to me because I Obviously, I'm in the hospital, uh, but I'm not actually there to support her and protect her. And now she has to make the drive up from Philadelphia to New York, and she has to be with my kids. And they have no idea what they're walking into. They only know that I was involved in this uh, fight with a guy with a knife and that I was stabbed several times. But they don't know what they're walking into. And out of everything I, I will tell you and I've told everybody, um, none of the details about the fight or the stabbing or the betrayal 
uh, gets to me. But when I talk about my wife and my family, that's the one part that always chokes me up and, uh, you know, gets me emotional because that's, I feel like I wasn't there for them that day. But, um, you know, I, I, look, I don't know how everyone else feels. I kind of feel like women are magical because um, they, they make human beings. I mean, their bodies are made to reproduce. and The right kind of women are magical, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, and they, and they keep the species going. Like, I, as much as I want to do in life or whatever, I can't make people. And, you know, my wife, my wife, bless, like I, I keep saying, my wife blessed me with, with two sons. And uh, to me, she's she's just the most amazing woman I know, not just because of that. But, um, you know, to me, they're magical. They, they, they keep the species alive. Like, I can't, I can't stress that enough. And, uh, you know, she's, I always say she's the backbone of the family. She survived. Uh, to me, she went through what I went through, even though she, uh, thank, thankfully she didn't have the physical wounds. But um, like you said, I think it's a good analogy. She had to see me, uh, see the aftermath of what I went through. She had to, to be there for me, which, of course, she wants to be. But uh, she also had to be there when, when everything happened afterwards with the court system. So, um, you know, she had to live that with me. And, and like you said, sometimes it's more difficult to see someone you love go through something than actually go through it yourself. So. Uh, she laughs when I call her the backbone of the family, but I, I 100% think she is. She laughs because she doesn't know how to respond, and she knows it's true, and we all know it's true. It does take a man and a woman uh, in God to uh, become whole, so there's no doubt about that. Uh, so uh, as, as she was driving to the hospital, did she know how bad you were? No, oh no. Uh, basically, what she knew, because what happened was that while I was in the hospital, the detective um, called her. She didn't pick up the phone. She was working that morning and it was an unknown number and we generally don't pick up unknown numbers. So I said, let me have the phone. I called her and I told her. And at first I think she thought I was just telling a sick joke, to be honest with you. You know, I, sometimes I say stupid things or whatever to try to get a laugh out of people. And, and I think at first that's what she thought I was doing. And, uh, when I finally told her, I said, look, take a breath. This is for real. And I told her what happened. I always say I, I heard the life just drain out of her, and um, she basically had to go home and uh, pack up, pack a few bags, and you know, grab my kids and uh, head up to New York. So she knew all she knew uh, going up to New York was that there was an incident on the subway. I was stabbed seven times, um, but that I was okay. So she knew that I was okay. I didn't have any damage, say to like uh, my my heart or any my spinal cord, my brain, whatever. Um, so she knew that much, but she had no idea what she was walking into. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, my wife does suffer from anxiety. So that even adds more to the story. But I think the part that I get proud of, not only for my wife, but, um, you know, she always talks about my kids who, like I said, were 10 and 7 at the time. And they handled it so great. They were basically they, they spent the whole ride almost being adults, telling her, you know, try to calm down. You spoke to daddy. He said he's okay. He sounds okay. So just try to breathe. And, and like, the whole situation is just such a source of pride for me, um, the way that everybody handled it. So, um, you know, it, 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 that, like I said, that's the one part of the story that always gets to me. All right. How bad were you, Joe? How Were you close to death? How bad did it get? Well, um, I lost a lot of blood. So I, I, I don't know how close to death I was. I know that uh, when the paramedics finally arrived and they uh, they put me on the stretcher, I passed out. Uh, I never lost full consciousness because I heard everything that was going on around me, but I did pass out. 
Uh, I did lose a ton of blood. And um, like I said, I ended up getting stabbed seven times. I got stabbed three times in the head, one time in the face, uh, one in the, once in the knuckle, once in the thumb, and once in my tricep. So, uh, I, I and, you know, you talk about God, and, and I always say I'm blessed. I mean, if he, one of the wounds in the back of my head, maybe six inches lower or however many inches lower, he hits me in the spinal cord and I'm paralyzed. And uh, then there's no question that I'm not here talking to you today. So, um, you know, I, I think I was in pretty rough shape, to be honest with you. But uh, I guess that's for the doctors to decide. But uh, it felt like I was near death, that's for sure. All right. So the guy's name who committed these horrific crimes, how do you say it? Maxim Gelman? Maxim Gelman. I guess it's a hard G. Maxim Gelman. All right. Yeah. And he basically killed four people in Brooklyn the, the um, you know, 24 hours or 48 hours before uh, Joe ran into this uh, criminal. Uh, I guess he killed four people in Brooklyn. And then he uh, met you in the subway. Nobody else really uh, stopped the guy or even tried, right? Well, uh, he, he did kill four people. He brutally murdered three of them with a knife. And he... Um, he carjacked a few cars during his rampage and he and he uh just plowed over a guy and he died instantly at the scene so those were the four murders uh it was a 28 hour killing spree and uh aside from the murders he did carjack one other person i think he, he attacked two other people um and then that morning is when uh you say i ran into him i mean he literally ran into me and uh he, he basically came up to me and challenged me and and uh that was it and then it was on but uh I don't know. I don't know the circumstances of all the other uh, incidents, but I don't think there was ever, let's say, a confrontation in terms of a, a fight going both ways. I, I know in all the uh, incidents, it was pretty much one way where he dictated the events, and uh, and then everything happened, and it led up to our showdown on the subway. All right, now you're kicking back, getting going to work, making all these transitions, long haul from Philadelphia, if you will. How did you get singled out, or how did you get face to face with this guy? Well, I think it was a geography thing. Um, I think the common belief is that he wanted to take over the subway. Uh, what he was going to do after that, I have no idea. Uh, but for people that aren't familiar with the subway, if, if, you know, if you've been on a train, it has 10 cars, 12 cars, whatever it is. And I was in the front car, uh, the very first seat. And uh, to just sort of give you a, a picture idea of this, uh, I was right behind the motorman. So basically... Uh, the motorman is in his compartment. It's a, it's a small steel compartment where he drives the train. Uh, you, you know, it's the steel wall. And then on the other side of the wall is where I was sitting. So um, I don't think it had anything to do with me in particular, maybe in, the, in a bigger scheme it did. Uh, but I think uh, just on the surface, I think it was more of where I was sitting and uh, everything that happened that day because he actually tried to get into the, to the motorman's booth uh, before the attack, he wanted to get in there, and he was rebuffed. So um, I think if it was if it wasn't me uh, on the surface, I think it would have been anyone that was sitting where I was sitting. How did it happen then? Most people got mowed down. How did you decide to fight? What was kind of the moment? Was it a decision for you? Was it a natural reaction for you? Was it a, you had the choice to bail or, or engage? Uh, you thought, uh, what was your thinking? Give me kind of an understanding. Yeah, so... So basically, right before the confrontation, he was standing over me. He was uh, probably two feet away from me. I was sitting down. He was standing up. He reached into the back of his jacket, pulled out this eight-inch knife, and said, you're going to die, you're going to die. And uh, he plunged it right under my left eye. So 
Um, I'd like to say at that moment, I, I formed this master plan and I knew what I needed to do to uh, take him down and disarm him. But honestly, it was, uh, it was reactionary. I guess on, on some level, I knew I had two options. Uh, I could either just turtle, cover up, or I could fight back and try to survive. And that's what I did. Hang tight. Joe Lozito with me, ladies and gentlemen. He considers himself the average Joe, and I guess that's true. A family man is the average Joe in America. He's not seeking for power or politics or fame or fortune or anything. He just wants to be left alone with his two sons and his lovely wife. But he stood up like we all need to do in America, ladies and gentlemen. Hang tight. More with Joe in seconds. Your daily Liberty Newswire. You're listening to Liberty News Radio. USA Radio News with Dan Naraki. A group of 10 Republican senators sat down with President Biden at the White House Monday evening to begin negotiations over a COVID relief package. During the two-hour session, the senators laid out their $618 billion counterproposal to the president's $1.9 trillion relief package. Senator Bill Cassidy is a part of that group that went to the White House, and the Louisiana Republican tells CNBC that there should be some optimism that a compromise can be reached. There was common ground that we've got to take care of the American people. The president said, listen, we may disagree on on some things, but we're not going to disagree on the need to take care of those in need. Now, Republicans offered for something more focused, but another bit of common ground is that we're, we're talking from data. What does the data show that we need? And the, the president's going to have his staff get back to us, and we'll kind of compare our, our data points. That's good news. This is USA Radio News. Here's some great news. If you missed the deadline to sign up for health insurance, or more importantly, if you sign up for a plan that you're just not happy with, you still have a choice. It's called MediShare, and MediShare is a Christian healthcare sharing program. It's been around for 25 years. They have more than 400,000 members now around the country. And get this, over the years, MediShare members have shared more than $2 billion of each other's medical bills, so they could help share your needs too. And best of all, you could save a lot of money with MediShare. The typical savings for a family is around 500 bucks a month. Your savings could be more or less, but think about what you could do with that extra money every month. So if you think you're stuck with a high-cost health plan that doesn't have much to offer, think again. You can join MediShare anytime, so call them today and check it out. There's no pressure. They're super easy to talk to. 833-34-BIBLE. That's 833-34-BIBLE. 833-34-BIBLE. January was the deadliest month of the pandemic in the U.S., with more than 95,000 deaths from COVID-19 recorded. Dr. Anthony Fauci believes things could still get a little worse, but the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases tells CNN that he sees some light at the end of the tunnel. It is conceivable that things could get a little worse. What we're starting to see, which is a good sign, is that we're starting to see a plateauing of the numbers of cases, which will always be followed by a diminution and a plateauing, and then ultimately a diminution of hospitalizations, as well as deaths. But still, even if it plateaus and starts to come down, we're still at a very high, disturbing level. But hopefully, we'll continue to see a downtrend. So if we continue to abide by and use and implement the public health measures, together with an increasing number of people who get vaccinated, I hope we can get a trend that will continue to come down lower and lower. This is USA Radio News. I want to dedicate this song 
to Mr. Rupert Murdoch. All right, ladies and gentlemen, Maxim Gilman was the criminal. And he killed four people in Brooklyn before slashing at Joe Lazito in the subway. The time frame is 2011. What was it, February the 12th, sir? Yes, sir. It was an average morning for Joe, long haul to work from Philadelphia. Joe was sitting down. The thug was standing up and said, in an evil hiss, you're going to die. You're going to die with that. Joe's normal commute to work turned into a nightmare. He stabbed Joe in the thigh. That's how it all started. You had a decision to cower and and, and, uh, let him just beat you up or to try to get away or to fight. You uh, naturally chose to fight. Uh, Did you do it um, to stop him from getting other people, or did you do it out of self-defense, or uh, obviously both? But what what drove your uh, your reaction? Um, I guess the easiest thing to say is if um, if you even if you take the knife out of it, if if someone comes up and punches you in the face, um, you're going to react. And um, you know, I'll, I'll be honest with you, it would be I would be lying. If I, if I said I did it to stop him, because I, I think I was the only one on the train that day that I had no idea about what he had done in the prior 28 hours because it wasn't a story yet in Philadelphia. So while it was a story in New York, and I know that there were people on the subway that knew exactly who he was and knew exactly what he had done in the prior 28 hours, I had no idea. To me, this was just a guy that was coming at me. And um, so I, I didn't know what he had done. I didn't find out what he had done until I had actually uh, reached the hospital. And while they were uh, checking me over for wounds and everything, that's when I was told what, what he had done. So at this point, it's just a fight to me. It wasn't that, you know, I, I wasn't trying to be any sort of hero or anything like that. Cause to me, it was just a guy coming at me, stabbed me. So um, it really was just reactionary. And like I said, I, I think subconsciously, I knew I had two choices. I could, I could cover up and ha- let him have his way with me and carve me like a turkey or fight back and I still may die but uh, I you know I, I don't know if people are getting tired of, of hearing me say this but I have too much to fight for I have my family here and, and uh, I was I definitely wasn't going to go down without a fight and uh, so that's what I did I decided to uh, to try and fight back and fortunately I'm here to tell the tale all right now you <clears throat> obviously he tried to get into the um, motorman's box he was rebuffed so they knew I don't know if they hit the 911 button, if they knew who this guy was, if they were in New York and knew the story. The cops, obviously, over the last 28 hours, were aware of the killings that have already taken place, and they were searching for this guy. Back up from the story. Now, we've heard your kind of perspective. Hey, you just engaged um, because you had to. Uh, But what about all these other people? Where the heck are they, sir? Well, Sam, just to clarify something that might blow your mind and maybe blow the minds of, of your listeners. Um, because he had done all this in the prior 28 hours, uh, a woman had phoned the police uh, at 96th Street Station because she had seen him. He actually approached her and told, and as she was reading an article about him, and he knocked the newspaper out of her hands and said all of this was a lie, and thankfully he didn't touch her. Well, she ran up to street level, called the police, and they sent probably hundreds of officers down into the subway system. So the person that actually rebuffed him from going into the motorman's compartment was actually uh, an armed uniformed new york city police officer there were two of them in there with the motorman uh gelman didn't know he was speaking to the police but the police definitely knew who gelman was because he was the reason why they were on the train 
So he thought he was having a conversation with the motorman. He was actually having a conversation with the police. So uh, they were right there, and they witnessed everything go down from the safety of that box. Um, if they knew who he was and if they were sent down there to find him and stop him and uh, they had an interaction with him, why didn't they stop him, sir? I'm not very smart. Um, I, I, the only thing I can say is that they're gutless and that they're cowards, and, uh, but I can't confirm that. Um, if we get into the aftermath, uh, he was made out to be a hero by New York City and, and by the police department and, the, uh, and their union, but uh, I think everybody knows the actual truth as to what happened. Um, it, it's right there in photos. Everybody can see who actually ended up in the skirmish with him, and it definitely wasn't the officer there. But uh, I don't know, stage fright, whatever it is, maybe having a gun and a, a billy club and mace and the um, you know, the uh, act of ha- <clears throat> being able to surprise someone wasn't enough to uh, give this man the bravery that was required in, the, in that moment. What did you have for the fight, Joe? Nothing? Uh, I had my hand and my hard head, I guess. Okay, so, but what I'm saying is you didn't have anything uh, to prepare you for this except for your life and maybe playing hockey or whatever and, and just a will, right? Yeah, that's it. Uh, I, I had my hand, my hard head, and uh, my will to not die. Wow. Yeah. All right, so how long did this skirmish take place and what was everybody else doing on the train while that was going down? Well, I always laugh because it actually takes me longer to talk about the actual fight than, than the actual fight, you know, length of time it took. It, it was probably uh, 45 seconds to a minute. I mean, he did the, uh, I give him credit, he did the maximum amount of damage in the minimum amount of time, that's for sure. He, he's very handy with his knife. And uh, all I can say is about what other people were doing, because obviously I was totally focused on the task at hand. Uh, I can only tell you that... Uh, before the fight happened, it wasn't a particularly crowded subway because it was a Saturday morning. But it was, I mean, I would say most of the seats were filled. And uh, once the fight was over and I got up, I looked and uh, most of the seats were wide open. And most of the people had either uh, scurried to the other end of the car or moved into the next car. Uh, so that's, uh, and that's what they were doing. And, and, and just so, you know, so everyone understands, I don't really... Uh, I don't. I don't blame any of them. I mean, this is no. Not but hold, stop, hold on. I do though. No one came to your aid, sir. Well, one person came to my aid in the aftermath. His name is Alfred Douglas, and he's the one that uh, I always credit with saving my life and being the actual hero of the day. Uh, but in terms of uh, helping me in the fight, no, nobody did. But but again, I, I I think a lot of people on the train knew who he was. They were probably just terrified being in the same car with him to begin with. Uh, and I think there's a lot to be said for that. Uh, maybe I was lucky in that sense where I had no idea who this guy was. Um, and you see this guy wielding this eight-inch knife, and, he's, and you know, there's blood everywhere. And maybe, you know, I, like I said, I, I don't blame anyone. There's nobody on, on that train aside from the two police officers uh, that I really hold accountable for it. I mean, uh, you know, uh, just an average person like myself that felt the need to run to the other car or run to the other end, I don't really... Uh, I, I don't. I don't hold any animosity or ill will to them because it's not. You know, I think I was put in a situation where I had to make a decision, and I think everybody else on the on the car were put in a similar situation, uh, and and maybe they chose what was best for them. So, and personally, I, I don't. I don't have any ill will towards any of them. How did you get him stopped then? If he's handy with his knife, if he's slicing you up pretty good and everything else, how did you get him stopped? Well, like I said, the first. He stabbed me first in in my face, under my left eye, in my left cheek. And as he brought his arm back to stab me again, 
there's a move in uh, in wrestling, like college wrestling, uh, called the single leg takedown. And basically, it's exactly what it is. You, you go for the legs. I mean, it's the easiest way to get someone down. If you do it successfully, you go for the legs to try to take them down. Now, although I watched several hours of MMA at that point, I never actually trained. So I guess instinctively, that's what I went for. But having no training, it actually, I went in too high. And I actually ended up wrapping my arms around his waist, and it ended up being more like a football tackle. So while I was able to tackle him and get him down, that's when he actually did the most damage is when he stabbed me the three times in the head, and those were my three worst wounds, the deepest wounds. Uh, but like I said, he, he, was, uh, he was very handy with that knife, and even though I got him down and I was on top of him, he was still trying to stab me, and um, that's when he stabbed me two more times. Uh, while I was on top of him with the knife because he's right-handed, so am I. So he's flailing up at me with that knife, and I'm trying to catch it with my left hand. And I missed him the first two times, and that's when he got me those two times. And finally, on the third time, I was able to catch his wrist, and I slammed his arm down, and the knife came out. And uh, that's when the cops came out of the uh, motorman's compartment, right right after that. So they just sat there in this compartment, sir, after they had already engaged him and chose not to... um take more aggressive action they watched this whole thing unfold and sat there uh from the safety of a locked steel door yeah these people belong in prison for a long time sir you would think that but the city later on gave one of the officers a uh, commendation for bravery and uh, the story that they tell is better than fiction believe it or not now, here's what's fascinating to me. You know, Americans are getting sick of the cops. Some are even going so far as calling the blue plague. I don't go there because I'm a member of the Constitutional Sheriffs and Peace Officers Association. Uh, in fact, not only am I a member, I'm the vice president of operations. And so I, I believe in the police. Uh, I get that there's some bad apples there and there's some cowards there. And I'm ashamed of that. But I, as a whole, believe in, in law and order, and I do believe in the, the proper role of a sheriff and the proper role of police officers. I think most of them are good, great, wonderful people that put their lives on the line every day. Uh, so I believe differently. But it, but it's no wonder that we're starting to get this view of the police with that kind of cover-up and that kind of dishonest defense, Joe. To me, the, the, the more heinous part of it is uh, above the police, not the actual individuals. And uh, we could discuss that further if you like. It's coming up in seconds, ladies and gentlemen. I'm telling you, the story's riveting, and I don't understand it. I just don't understand what happened after. Um, you would think that, that people would want to do all they could to protect and, and, and do all they could for Joe. But not in government sometimes, ladies and gentlemen. Not when cowards are on the line with authority, right? Hang tight. Joe Lozito with me. for Moral Law is a nonprofit legal foundation committed to protecting our unalienable right to publicly acknowledge God. The Foundation for Moral Law exists to restore the knowledge of God in law and government and to acknowledge and defend the truth that man is endowed with rights not by our fellow man but by God. The foundation maintains a twofold focus. First, litigation within state and federal courts. Second, education conducting seminars to teach the necessity and importance of acknowledging God in law and government. How can you help? Please make a tax-deductible contribution, allowing foundation attorneys to continue the fight. You may also purchase various foundation products as well at morallaw.org. Located in Montgomery, Alabama, the Foundation for Moral Law is a nonprofit, tax-exempt 501c3 founded by Judge Roy Moore. Please partner with us to achieve this important mission, morallaw.org. 
The spirit of the American West is live and well in Range Magazine, the award-winning quarterly devoted to the issues affecting the American West. Each issue contains informative articles, breathtaking imagery, as well as the culture of cowboy spirit today, and gift ideas like the 2021 Real Buckaroo Calendar. Order online from rangemagazine.com. Loving Liberty Network salutes the spirit of the American West at rangemagazine.com. Well, my mom smokes and my dad smokes, and I saw them smoking, so I tried it. They're telling me not to smoke, but they smoke themselves. When it comes to smoking, are you sending mixed signals? But when you teach someone a certain way to do things, and you go back on that certain way, it sends mixed signals to the person that they're trying to teach. The parents need to be a good example. Smoking. If you think you're old enough to start, you're smart enough to stop. A public service message from this station and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. All right, ladies and gentlemen, Joe Lazito on your radio. His story is riveting. It's impressive. It's sad. You know what? It pisses people like me off because you go, you know what? How does this happen? I'm not talking about Joe and his fight and winning and stopping the thug. I'm grateful for that. We're talking about a New York subway hero, but after that, his life of how he's grateful and not angry and hate-filled and everything else is just impressive. His book is called The New York Subway Hero, My Battle with Evil and the Spree Killer, or a Spree Killer. It's on Amazon. It was written in 2014. Get your copy today. You can also check out his podcast called Coliseum Chronicles, The Penalty Box. Talking about enforcers that played for the uh, New York Islanders. Anyway, Maxim Gel- Gelman killed four people before he slashed at Joe and <laughs> ruined Joe's day, to say the least. But the unfortunate twist to this story, ladies and gentlemen, which I really want to focus on here, is that all this happened in full view of two <laughs> uniformed police officers, what, NYPD? Yes, sir. Who sat there, watched the whole thing. After Joe got the guy stopped, and after uh, the gentleman that helped him, what's his name again? Uh, Alfred Douglas. After Alfred Douglas helped uh, Joe uh, and everything else, then the cops came and said, hey, we got this. But what on earth is going on when the cops literally confronted this guy before he turned on Joe? Uh, When I say confronted him, I mean they talked to him and they rebuffed him from entering uh, the Mutterman's cage, if you will. But yet... They didn't stop him. Now, these officers were on the train specifically to stop and arrest Gelman. But no. And they covered it up and they lied about the facts of the story. The problem is they're lying about the facts of the story didn't last long because the truth came out, right? Yeah. So the, the first 24 hours, let's say, of the story, the only uh, people that were speaking to the media were the police, I, I don't know if the officer himself actually spoke or if it was through police spokesman or whatever. And uh, because I was in the hospital, so nobody had access to me. So the narrative that was out there the first 24 hours were just how heroic these police officers were. And then the next day, uh, one a reporter from the New York Daily News came to see me in the hospital. And it's funny because she, I think she really came in just to get uh, my view of what happened and, and to talk about the police. And she basically said, tell me what happened right from the start. And I, and I started telling her the story and she got this look on her face and said, wait, you stopped him? And I said, yeah. 
And she said, well, that's not what the police are saying. And I said, I don't know what they're saying, but this is what happened. And her eyes got real big. And, you know, because now she's the first reporter that I'm speaking to. And, uh, you know, even though it was 10 years ago, digital age is there. And she writes her story. Then the other newspapers hop on board. And uh, it just took off like wildfire. So he was a hero for about 24 hours. And then when the truth came out, uh, you know, I guess to their credit, the police and the, the their union and the city stuck to their story, but uh, I think the facts are just uh, too much in your face to deny what happened. And I don't know who's bigger scum, the guy with a knife or the cops that took the credit and covered it up, sir. But I, I don't mean to be offensive. I'm just saying I, I can't nope. take this, Joe. Well, I, listen, I, you know, to be honest, I've said the actual fight, uh, the, the actual fisticuffs were easier than everything that uh, I went through and my family went through afterwards because – um, you don't expect much from someone like Gelman, and he kind of lived up to the expectations you have for him. But, you know, for someone like myself, who's been a law-abiding citizen my whole life and was raised that way, uh, you kind of expect, so you expect the police to do their job, uh, and these two police specifically uh, that I'm speaking of, but then you kind of expect that you'll have your rights as a taxpayer, you'll have your rights as a, just a citizen, that you'll get your day in court. And uh, I figured that they can tell all the lies they want. I'm just going to get them in court. And then uh, I didn't even get that opportunity. I think it was just corruption in the highest order. Well, and I get the cops maybe saying, I'm afraid I don't want to get all sliced up. And, you know, let's just see how this thing unfolds. And if we have to, we'll take action. I'm not saying I agree with that. I'm just saying I can understand cowardice, right? What I can't understand is that the end, though, trying to take credit and spin the story and then two to cover it up like they did and try to play games with the facts, Um, especially when they were the ones that were supposed to go in and stop this guy. I just don't understand that. Uh, Then what I don't understand even more so is after all that, you would think, hey, the cops would be, um, you know, fired for dereliction of duty or whatever you want to call it. And, you know, the, the police force would go forward and, and have integrity and say, you know what, Joseph, you're a hero. We're so sorry about our police officers. We don't know what to say. And take the hit and, and move on. But no, they literally closed ranks. They literally had the courts, the media, everybody um, spin this in a way that doesn't make any sense to the point where a Manhattan judge. So Joe did go to court. But he didn't get a fair day in court. There was not a proper due process of law, really. The Manhattan judge dismissed subway stabbing victim Joe Lozito's lawsuit against the NYPD. Basically said, hey, when two officers failed to aid him and protect him and everybody else on the train for that matter, when they had every opportunity to, let's be very clear, um, then they dismissed the suit and said, you don't have any expectation of rights or protection from the cops? Yes, and, and um, what she also said in the dismissal was she found my recollection of events highly credible. So to me what that means is she believes everything I said, uh, but she had to dismiss this case because the police have no duty to protect, and uh, which caught a lot of people off guard. And, uh, and I, I just want everybody to understand that you had, you had started to allude to the fact that police are under attack in this country and everything, and, and I understand that. It, it, it is true. Um, but even after this, like, I'm, I'm not anti-cop. I, I'm very proud to say my sister is a retired New York City police officer. Uh, my wife has uh, cousins who are retired police officers on her side of the family. We have friends that are police officers. So in no way do I hold an entire police force to the fire because of the inactivity of two 
Well, and uh, I, I agree want... with that, but I yeah. also say though that you know what? It's the system that covers it up that is creating this the rift between the police and the people, and that needs to stop. And so even well, now, I would hope that somehow we could get some kind of a redress of grievance for you on this and create accountability at somewhere. Well, I definitely agree. I've said the system is broken uh, 100,000 times since, uh, since the day my case was dismissed. It, it is the system that needs to be changed. Um, well, what I've always said is if, you, if I had my day in court and I lost, if I had my day in court and I won and my award in quotes was a dollar, I'm okay with that. Because I had my day in court, and the system is, is doing what it's supposed to do. Um, you know, it's easy for me to say because I know what the facts of the case are. And I know that there was no way I would have ever lost in court. And uh, I would have loved the opportunity to get, uh, to get these officers on the stand and, and have them, uh, you know, tell their recollection. Because I think it was, uh, I, I don't know who said it first, but I've heard Judge Judy say it a bunch of times. When you tell the truth, you don't need a good memory. And uh, all the stories that uh, were spun from, from that side, it seems like they'd have to remember an awful lot of stories. So, uh, you know, when I tell my story, I don't have a script. It's just from memory. And uh, it seems like they would, they would probably have a little trouble uh, recollecting all the lies that were told. And, and if I got them on the stand in a pressure, a pressure situation, uh, I don't like their chances. Do you think it was attorneys? If you had better attorneys, you could have won. Do you think? What do you think on this thing? Can we go back and do anything about this? Uh, well, no. I, I think my attorney did a great job. I, I think it was a case where, uh, from the first day that I went to his office, he told me exactly what their game plan was going to be. Was that we were going to go? They were going to go to court a couple of times. We were going to uh, go through the discovery phase, and then they were going to make a motion to dismiss. Where I think everything changed, and where I think everything, the process was sped up was uh, my wife and I had an interview with the uh, New York City, uh, the insurance adjuster for the city. And uh, it got to the point where after the interview, we called my lawyer back in the office and said, Jesus, this guy is the city's worst nightmare. And, and my lawyer said, what do you mean? And he said, well, first of all, he remembers everything. He's, not, he's never been in trouble. He speaks very clearly, speaks very coherently. And, um, you know, he just, you can just tell. And he goes, this guy is a nightmare for the city. And I think after that, that may have sped up the process of them trying to get the case dismissed. And, uh, you know, like I always wonder, you know, what happens behind closed doors, behind the scenes. And, uh, you know, maybe they got the right judge to uh, to kind of say, well, even though I believe everything he says, I'm going to just use old precedent. And, uh, and if people read the book, I basically go over every case that they put in their motion to dismiss and not a single one uh, is similar to my case. So to me, they were grasping at straws, but... Um, I guess that's how the law works. Uh, it was definitely a David going up against Goliath, and uh, I didn't stand a chance. As far as any reason. Goliath being the government and the cops and the courts, not Goliath being the knifeman. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, that's why, that's why the title of the book is uh, My Battle with Evil and the Spree Killer. To me, the evil is the, is the government and, and the system that I went up against. Like I said, the fight. But let's make it clear Goliath. the evil is the corruption in government, not the proper role of government as well. Correct. Yeah. So. Uh, it's basically everything I went through after the fact, and, and it was almost like getting attacked all over again. You know, I found out that my case was dismissed while I was at work one day, and wow. uh, then I had to—I didn't want to tell my wife over the phone. I didn't want to tell my kids over the phone. I had to—I had to digest that for a couple of hours before I went home, and then I had the two and a half hour commute home, and then I had to bring that up to them, and it was just a nightmare. And, and I always say it was like getting attacked all over again. So uh, I don't think I have any recourse. I think the statute of limitations is long expired. Uh, I, but there are a lot, 
smarter people out there than I am when it comes to this stuff, and I'm always uh, I'm always game to try to get something done if, if I did have any recourse. Well, the important thing in my mind now is to highlight history so it never, ever repeats itself in this kind of a scenario, ladies and gentlemen, that they don't preserve their own above integrity for the American people and building trust with the people in whom they serve, etc. That, to me, is the most important piece of this. Where's Gelman now, and where's the, where are these cops now? Uh, Gelman is in an upstate New York prison. He got um, he was sentenced to 50 years for each murder uh, and 25 years for attempted murder of me. So he'll hopefully uh, die in prison. Well, he definitely will die in prison as long as he doesn't escape. But hopefully sooner rather than later. I have no uh, I have no issue saying that uh, he's upstate New York and uh, the police. I assume uh, Terrence Howell, who was the, the male cop there, he may even be retired by now. He had a lot of years. Uh, on the force at that point, and it's been 10 years, so he could be retired. Uh, the other officer on the train who was even more useless, Tamara Taylor, I think she was a lot younger. She's probably still on the force. So uh, I always say, Ted, insult to injury, uh, since I work in New York State and I work in New York City, uh, my tax dollars go to keeping Max and Gelman alive in jail and to help uh, pay the salaries of the two officers who uh, screwed me that day. Well, these officers will have to live with that for the rest of their life, and what a penalty to pay. They know the truth, and they know honor, and they're going to have to live with the shame of that for the rest of their lives. On the other hand, Joseph can sleep at night peacefully with his lovely wife and knowing that he's got his family with him and he's got a life, thank heavens to God Almighty, and the MMA, huh? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I always say, I guess uh, it penetrated my brain through osmosis because... uh, I don't know. Maybe if I don't watch it, I don't know what I do. But, uh, but yeah, absolutely. Thank God for that. I want to focus on this more, Joe. We've done one hour. We're flat out of time. I will get a hold of you later. There's more I want to do with this story, okay? Anytime. Thank you so Joseph, much. Joseph, thank you for your time, sir, and, and we're grateful you're alive. Uh, tell your wife we're grateful for her. We know that it takes two to tango, and uh, we know that a lot of your attitude and your way of looking at life is because of her. Thank her for me, will you? Oh, definitely. Thank you, sir. All right. Talk to you soon. There he goes, ladies and gentlemen. I'm telling you right now, a story that just makes you, on one hand, it makes you mad. On the other hand, it makes you grateful. Grateful for people like Joe. If we had a gazillion Joes in America, I don't think we'd be in the trouble we're in, ladies and gentlemen. Get his book now. Riveting story. The New York Subway Hero. My Battle with Evil and a Spree Killer. Came out in 2014. It's on Amazon. Ladies and gentlemen, this nation shall endure. God save the Republic of the United States of America. Broadcasting live from atop the Rocky Mountains, the crossroads of the West. You are listening to the Liberty Roundtable Radio Talk Show. All right, happy to have you along, my fellow Americans. Sam Bushman, live on your radio, hard-hitting news that it was refused to use, no doubt, continues now. This, my fellow Americans, is the broadcast for February the 2nd, the year of our Lord, 2021. This is our two of two, and our goal always to protect life, liberty, and property, and to promote God, family, and country on your radio in the traditions of our founding fathers. Yes, indeed, ladies and gentlemen. We use the blueprint for liberty, the supreme law of the land, the Constitution for the United States of America as our guide. And we reject revolution. We stand for peaceful restoration of the greatest country on the face of the earth. Welcome to Liberty Roundtable Live. Hope you're all doing absolutely fantastic. Patrick Simmons with us now, righttowork.org. 
Welcome back, sir. Good morning, Sam. Wow, have uh, the gloves come off with Joe Biden in office, huh? Yeah, it's happening. Uh, it's happening real quick, uh, one after the other, um, and we're seeing some some real unprecedented uh, stuff happening uh, here. All right, what's this guy's name? He's one of the big leaders of the Labor Relations Board. They asked him to resign. He said, "Uh, uh-uh, they fired him." Right? Yeah, Peter Robb was uh, Trump's um, appointee to be general counsel of the NLRB. The, the The National Labor Relations Board has five members, but they also have a general counsel who's appointed by the president um, for a four-year term, uh, confirmed by the Senate. And um, traditionally, uh, they've always served out that term. Um, you know, uh, President Obama's uh, selection uh, was uh, in office for the first nine months of Trump's term. Uh, President Bush's uh, selection was, I believe, in office for uh, close to 18 months. Um, during the beginning of, of Obama's uh, term in office, uh, and yet on day one, um, literally 23 minutes uh, past noon on inauguration day, uh, the so Biden was still on the on the podium giving his speech, um, and yet his uh, someone from his office uh, said, "You have till 5 p.m. to resign, or we're going to fire you," which has never happened before in the existence of um, the general counsel's position. Um, which is which has been around uh, for over seventy years, um, and sure enough, they did that. Uh, the next day, they demanded his deputy, who had been uh, because by virtue of being his deputy, became the acting general counsel. Um, they did the same thing to her, and then they plucked someone out of uh, the Chicago office, um, who has now uh, begun um, just uh, steamrolling um, and eviscerating. Um, uh, a lot of the things that uh, Peter Robb had done to protect workers uh, who were the victims of union coercion. Um, and so we're, we're seeing a, a full, full-on power grab at the National Labor Relations Board right now, something that's never happened before. Um, and, uh, you know, Joe Biden uh, had talked uh, a lot. Uh, you know, one of the themes was, oh, you know, this return to normalcy or whatever. And there are all sorts of reasons why that's ridiculous. Um, but uh, his, his first minutes in office uh, show that uh, this is anything but, but normal. Um, Wait a minute, I thought, I thought we were going to get, like, united and stuff. Right. Yeah. That, um, that, that may have been what he, he told uh, people to get them, uh, some of them to vote for him, but it's certainly not um, how it's playing out. Uh, and we're seeing it uh, every day. Just last night, this um, acting general counsel, um, although it's, it's uh, you know, I should say, it's, it's not only as unprecedented, um, it's, there's a real question of, of whether it's legal. It's it's already uh, starting to see some action uh, on that issue. Uh, I expect a lot more, including uh, perhaps in, in some of the cases that we have when adverse action is taken against the workers uh, we're assisting. Um, but this is gonna it's gonna play out in the courts. But but no matter what happens on on that side of things, um, there's no question. This is this is not uniting. This is not um, you know bipartisan. This is not a, a return to um, some sort of norms. Uh, this is this is a, an extremely radical, um, you know, action that has been taken and it is being undertaken. And it's like I said, it's it's really um, it's making the National Labor Relations Act, which is already um, very one-sided in, in how it treats workers who don't want to associate with a union. Um, but there are some protections for those workers, and and it's pretty clear they're moving to wipe out as many of those as possible um, to the benefit, of course, of 
unions and union officials who overwhelmingly lined up in support of Joe Biden's um, election. So you've got uh, basically a payback to one of his biggest donors, um, and it, it took all of 23 minutes. Uh, for him to be in office for that to take place. All right, let's talk about Peter Robb for a second, because, you know, they want you to believe this is like Trump's appointee. Trump went extreme with Peter Robb, and now Biden's going to go extreme the other way and reject Peter Robb, and that's not really the story, is it? No, I I don't think so. I mean, you know, the the general counsel was set up by Congress to be independent, um, and they're the ones who uh, have sort of prosecutorial oversight. and, you know, Peter Robb uh, prosecuted businesses and he prosecuted unions. Um, and, and he did, you know, both of them. And when there's tough decisions, they often make their way up to the National Labor Relations Board and they're the ones who decide it. Um, but, but, you know, what, what they were, but union officials are so upset about is he took seriously the protections that workers have um, against being coerced uh, into unions. So, I mean, one of his, his big, um, they have they're called advice memos that the general counsel's issue and it's to basically tell the the lower level uh bureaucrats say these are important cases i, I want you to you know um, when you get a, someone alleging that their rights have been violated in this type of case uh, you need to take it particularly seriously and and one of the the big areas that he was enforcing was workers beck rights that's under the 1988 supreme court um, decision in a national right to work uh case, a case argued by National Right to Work Foundation attorneys, um, about workers' rights not to fund union political activities. Um, you know, you, even in a, in, a, in a state, as we've discussed before, in a right-to-work state, all union financial support is voluntary. It's up to each worker. Um, in states without right-to-work laws, there's the so-called agency fees that workers can be forced to pay for, but they cannot be forced to pay for union ideological and political activities. Um, and, and so he said, look, we need to, we need to be active um, in enforcing workers' rights. Um, Hold when on, unions when you are, say are he, you to... mean Peter Robb? Yeah, Peter Robb. And, Peter we, Robb. and let me be very clear, because I want to make sure people understand this. This does not need to be tied to Trump. Okay, yeah, Trump put him there, fine. But what we're talking about is a man who is um, general counsel, who basically said, look, I have laws to uphold. And I'm going to uphold the laws in the states that they relate to. I'm going to do it nationally uh, from a uh, law-based point of view. In the states that are right to work, we're going to have certain you know, guidelines and realities. And in the other states, we're going to have a similar thing but, but different based on the laws there. Uh, this guy wasn't uh, out of his mind or, or, or pushing any agendas or, or anything like that at all, right? No, that's yeah. He, I mean, well, he he did have an agenda, but his agenda was nothing unusual or abnormal. It was to enforce uh, workers' rights under the National Labor Relations Act. I know, but hold on, that's um, just keeping his oath of office, though. That's not an agenda, right? Yeah, I I, I guess yeah. Um, no, you're you're right. And, it's and not I don't mean to agenda. play games with words, but I, I want to be very clear, though. I guess if you want to say his agenda is to uphold the law, okay. But what I mean is he didn't have. Uh, any buttons to push, any agenda, any focus. He didn't do things that were outside the law. I mean, I don't understand the political nature of what Joe Biden has turned this into is what I'm driving at. Yeah, well, uh, you know, I think it gets to uh, he was, uh, was uh, you know, willing to prosecute union officials um, when they were, were caught violating workers' rights. But if they are violating um, workers' rights, they need to be prosecuted, sir. That's what I'm trying to get oh. at. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. That's that's correct, and that's how the National Labor Relations Act is set up. And you know, if 
union officials don't like that, the answer is for Congress to change the law. There are all sorts of reasons why the, the changes they want to make would be terrible, but, but that's where that process should take place. Agreed. Not- and the reason I highlight this so much, though, is the president shouldn't have an axe to grind uh, against any of this or have an agenda either. And that's what I'm really trying to get at is, hey, Mr. Rob does not have an agenda. He's carrying out the law as specified by, by the way, the lawmakers. That's Congress. Um, Whereas Joe Biden, though, seems to have a problem with that and an agenda that conflicts with that. Yeah, no, I I think he he absolutely does. Uh, You know, he views the National Labor Relations Board not as a neutral arbiter of the law, which is what it was set up to be, um, and Believe me, uh, you know, the National Right to Work Foundation, we have plenty of criticisms of the National Labor Relations Act, but the fact that it, uh, you know, purports to be a neutral agency is not one of them. Um, but that seems to be the problem that the Biden administration has, which is, you know, the idea that this is not just an arm of organized labor that assists union officials in their agenda, but has, you know, the, the obligation to assist workers when they, for example, don't want to pay for union officials' political activities. Um, and so uh, that's, that's what we're seeing. We're seeing, um, you know, unions spent, we don't really know yet. Uh, we probably will never know the, the total figure, but hundreds of millions, um, maybe a billion dollars uh, in this last election. Um, you know, we know from past experience every two years they, they spend uh, over $2 billion on political activities and lobbying. Um, and this is uh, the kind of influence that it, it buys them. All right. Is, can Peter Rob do anything about this, or does he just, does he just have to walk away? Um, I think, uh, I mean, he, he, I've seen some, some indications that he's, he's looking at uh, launching his own legal challenge. Um, I know, in addition, uh, there are, like I said, there's already people whose cases are being affected by um, this new so-called acting general counsel, um, who may only be there through an illegal removal of Peter Robb, they're raising this issue um, in, in legal action. What they're and likely there's going to be a lot do, more of that. What they're likely to do is have this temporary person there do all the damage, then remove the temporary person, put somebody else there, and now it's going to be hard to claim that the person there is, is you know responsible or whatever else. It just makes it ten times harder from a legal point of view because they're already turned out, if you will. Yeah, I, I expect that's part of what their calculation is. Let's look, we'll do it. We'll maybe we get caught, but uh, but ultimately, we'll have stopped all these things from from going forward for a long enough period of time that uh, it's it's worth it. Uh, Patrick but, but Simmons we'll with us, righttowork.org, ladies and gentlemen. Hang tight, we got a lot more on your radio. Hey, Mom, Dad, Mark here. Wow, I love college. Really? I never knew living on my own could be so uh, good for me. Uh, to change your message, press 7. So, here I am at college. It's cool. Well, of course, it's only been a week. To change your message. Hey, it's me. I was just remembering that time I hit my first home run. You know, through the garage window. Thanks for not being mad. No. To change Hi. Boy, I miss you guys. I miss my room. I miss waking up to warm socks straight from the dryer. Warm socks? Family. Isn't it about time? Hi, it's Mark. Um, love you guys. Uh, I'll call you later. From the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. 
If Planned Parenthood were what they publicly declare themselves to be, they would welcome transparency. We all know why they hide, because we know what they hide. We can confirm federal judges who follow the Constitution rather than reverse engineer their preferred policy outcomes. The truth about abortion is spreading because of advances in medical imaging, because of brave journalists, tireless activists, compassionate doctors, nurses, and other healthcare professionals. The rising generation of young Americans is the most pro-life in decades because they know too. And one day soon, we will reaffirm our nation's principles in their dignified fullness and avow once again that all men are created equal. All are entitled to life. All right, Patrick Simmons with me, ladies and gentlemen. Your national right to work is the issue. National Right to Work Legal Defense Foundation. Righttowork.org is the easiest website for me to get to. Biden took the unprecedented step to fire Peter Robb, uh, National Labor Relations Board General Counsel, with really um, no reason. Okay, a lot of times there's people in administrations that serve no matter who uh, is in power, and they serve because they're supposed to be nonpartisan, nonpolitical positions. Well, Joe, while he claims unity, blew that right out of the water. It literally took him seconds, a big, huge payback to unions. But it gets worse, ladies and gentlemen. Quote, we should change the law so that there's no right to work allowed anywhere in the country. Not a joke. That's what Joe Biden brazenly stated, right? He proclaimed this openly. Patrick? Yeah, no, there's uh, there's no question um, that uh, his position is uh, that all 27 existing right-to-work laws should be wiped out. Um, other states considering right-to-work should be banned from doing so. Um, and he supports uh, a bill in Congress, the, the so-called PRO Act, um, the uh, that would would do just that. It would change federal law to prohibit uh, any state from having a, a right to work law. Um, so millions of workers in the 27 right to work states um, could suddenly be told pay up or be fired um, by a union. Uh, and um, other states considering right to work, um, and, and there are a couple right now that uh, that seem to have some uh, momentum building towards that. Uh, you know, would be prohibited from doing so as well. And uh, it's uh, you know, it's it's a it's a really radical position. Uh, there's there's no there's no way around that. I mean, polling consistently shows 75, 80 percent of Americans uh, support uh, the idea that uh, union uh, funding should be voluntary. That workers should not be required to join or pay dues to a union, but that they should have the individual freedom of choice um, so that they can do that if they want. Uh, but they can't be required to do so. Um, and yet, uh, once again, getting back to this, you know, payback to some of his biggest political donors, um, he wants to to force uh, workers to pay them money. Um, Is money this a lawsuit turn around and use to... where he gets this huge donor money and then he turns right around and literally 
um, turns an office that was never meant to be political into a political reality check right on the spot, claims unity while doing it, uh, fires this guy, literally comes back then and says, hey, we need to get rid of right to work all across the country. There should be no such thing as right to work or whatever else. And I mean, is this a lawsuit just waiting to happen, Patrick, or am I overreaching on this? Well, I think there's a, there's multiple lawsuits there waiting to happen. Um, I mean, we already talked about this. There's going to be lawsuits on, on the firing of Peter Robb. Um, certainly, if the PRO Act uh, were ever passed into law, there'd be lawsuits about that. Um, because wiping out right to work is not even the you know, the only thing it does. Uh, it's it's one of uh, a long list of of uh, of aspects of that bill, all designed to expand uh, union boss force due power um, over workers. Um, other aspects of it are card check, which that lets uh, unions uh, organize workers, unionize them without even a secret ballot vote. Um, so they right now the the normal way of of unionizing is there's a petition, thirty uh, percent of the workers sign the petition, and then they get a vote in secret, so that you'll be know you know of course the in the secret with a secret ballot um, in a voting booth where the union official can't see how you're voting, uh, you're able to to vote your conscience much more easily. Um, whereas when you you know they 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 give you a card and two or three guys surround you and and maybe say hey everyone else is signing sign this card uh, you know you don't want to be the guy who once we get into power we know uh, opposed us um, that kind of pressure um, and we've seen other deliberate lies that go along with that um, anyway that's the system that would be mandated by the pro act um, they want to unionize uh, be able to unionize every Uber Lyft driver. Um, independent contractors, people who are freelancers, um, all these these types of, of individuals who currently are not subject to the National Labor Relations Act and the forced dues um, and forced representation uh, that that law entails, they want to expand that to millions and millions of other um, individuals around this country. And so, you know, this is a massive uh, forced dues giveaway, um, and there's really no other way to look at it. And so, you know, that yeah, there's going to be um, there'll be lawsuits to, to parts challenging parts of that bill. I would expect if it ever passed, um, we're hopeful that uh, it, it'll be stopped in the Senate. Um, we know that it passed the House last time, and I think there's every reason to think it, it could easily do so again. Um, and but um, yeah, I mean, there's there's multiple lawsuits, but it is, I mean, it, it is remarkable. I, I can, you know, you don't want to always, you know, go back to, you know, what what. Trump would, uh, you know, the, the Trump kind of comparative. But if imagine if uh, 23 minutes into Donald Trump's um, presidency, he had done an, something that had never been done in 70 years uh, to knock out the guy who was prosecuting some of his biggest donors. Um, that would be front page uh, headline, you know, in, in, in all these major newspapers, CNN, MSNBC, you know, NBC News, you, you would see nothing but that, and yet um, th- there's been relative silence on this, and, and to the extent people are talking about it, it's it's just sort of as if it's some sort of procedural thing and not a giant payback to his biggest donors, which is exactly what it is. Well, I hope we sue Joe like no other on this, because I believe that what we're doing is under the, quote, lie of unity – is we are literally destroying America, ladies and gentlemen. Not only are they going for uh, getting rid of this general counsel, not only is Joe Biden brazenly proclaiming 
we should change the federal law so there's no right to work anywhere in our country. Uh, they're literally attacking specific states uh, right now as well. What, Nevada's one of them? Yeah, Nevada is, is one of them. Um, New Jersey? They're, they're coming after uh, – well, no, New Jersey doesn't have a right to no, work. No, so Virginia. Virginia. Virginia, Virginia Yeah, Virginia and Nevada are the two uh, where there's a real active um, – well, there's a, there's a serious concern that they're going to try and repeal those two right-to-work laws. They did so uh, in the previous session. Uh, Virginia is uh, an off year, so it's the same legislature um, composition of the legislature now as it was last year. And last year they they had bills in both houses. Um, they they came real close. They sent it to a quote study committee to study it, but they didn't they didn't fully kill it off. Um, and so it's something that uh, the National Right-to-Work Committee is really working on to mobilize citizens in those two states. Uh, Nevada, a similar issue. Um, they, they, you know, the way that that legislature is, um, it's, it's under threat. And so we're trying to mobilize um, people to, to contact their legislators and know, let them know this is unpopular. Um, you know, they may think that, that rewarding uh, union officials um, because of the, the money they throw around is, is a good idea, but the voters are the, the ultimate accountability, and, um, and, and they need to hear from them because they're overwhelmingly opposed to that. We know that from polling. All right, the battle's on, ladies and gentlemen. The uh, reality has changed. Joe's on the offensive big time. And I don't really know how much of it is Joe versus the people surrounding Joe, um, which is really kind of important to understand as well, right, Patrick? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, there's, there's definitely, um, you know, there's, there's people making political calculations, and I think you know you look at the, the Keystone uh, pipeline, which happened same day. Uh, you know, threatens to the, get this guy fired, uh, wipes him out, unprecedented, never been done. At the same time, he's he's destroying thousands of union jobs that were going to be on that pipeline, and so he's saying, "Look, union officials, I may be I may be harming your members, but don't worry, I'm I'm going to look out for you and your power um, with these other grabs." And I think so. There's some calculation there that he's got all these various special interests that he needs to appease. Um, and so if he's, you know, throwing some, some union workers under the bus on one thing, he's going to try and make it up to the union officials, even though it doesn't help the members, but make it up to the union officials by protecting their uh, power and knocking out this prosecutor who was um, catching them violating the law. And this is what happens when you have too many unholy alliances, huh? Yeah, it's uh, you know he's got a lot of a lot of special interests to pay off, and um, and, and certainly big labor is is at the top of that list. But uh, but there's there's a balancing act, and so you know uh, whether it's Joe Biden or or the people um, you know pulling the strings uh, behind behind him, um, there's there's a lot taking place here, and it's it's getting real ugly real quick. No, no question about that. Well, you better fight for your right to be able to work, ladies and gentlemen, because, hey, they want to take it away from you. One of their big pushes, they want to push for a universal basic income, and then you won't even need to deal with workers there, um, Patrick. Yeah, I think that's, you know, that, that's certainly, I mean, what, what they're looking for. But, uh, but we're going to keep fighting for workers. We want people to be able to work, um, to make a living, and uh, not be forced to, to pay a labor union uh, to do it. It right should be their work. choice. RightToWork.org, Patrick Simmons, thank you so much, sir. We'll have you back soon. Our prayers are with you guys, brother. Thank you, Sam. There he goes, doing a phenomenal job as always. That update's worthy. I'm telling you right now, man, Biden's on a bender. I'll tell you what. Hang tight. Liberty Roundtable Live. I am Sam Bushman. Exposing corruption. Informing citizens. 
Pursuing Liberty. You're listening to Liberty News Radio. USA Radio News with Lance Pride. Governor Andrew Cuomo, the Democrat from New York, comes under immense scrutiny for his handling of the COVID-19 pandemic. On Monday, a report details Cuomo's contentious relationship with the New York State Health Department. The Times report claimed nine top health officials resigned over the last year. The former officials allege Cuomo sidestepped their proposals for dishing out COVID-19 vaccines to residents. They added Cuomo deleted decades worth of planning. A hundred House Democrats are asking House Speaker Nancy Pelosi to include amnesty for some illegal immigrants in the COVID relief package. The Congressional Hispanic Caucus is heading up the group of House Democrats who sent a letter to Pelosi over the weekend seeking amnesty for at least five million illegal immigrants deemed essential workers and added to the stimulus bill. Six people were arrested Monday for trespassing after altering California's iconic Hollywood sign, changing the last four letters to B-O-O-B. USA Radio News. Balance of nature's fruits and vegetables in a capsule, changing the world one life at a time. You guys, your customer service and everything, you guys are great. And the commercials talk about it, but I don't know if it really gives it true justice. People need to know, this is maybe the most amazing product I've ever tried. It's so pure, it tastes so good, I'm just blown away by it. Balance of Nature is now offering 35% off on any new preferred order. Go to balanceofnature.com today and use discount code USA. Could an ancient mystery be determining the events of our time? Could it reveal the secret of our future? Are recent events a warning that we are approaching judgment? How much time do we have left? Author Jonathan Kahn releases the book that reveals what could not be revealed until now. His newest New York Times bestseller, The Harbinger 2, The Return. Embark on an epic journey to uncover the mysteries and revelations that are changing the world and will change your life. Available online and wherever fine books are sold. President Trump is expected to give comments to the court Tuesday on the impeachment trial set to begin next week. USA Radio News, Dan Naraki has more. A week away from his second impeachment trial, former President Donald Trump announced he was bringing in a new legal team. Former Assistant U.S. Attorney Andy McCarthy tells Fox News that in a legal proceeding, that would be cause for a delay in a trial. But since impeachment is a political matter, the president's new team will have to quickly prepare their defense. They can make arguments for all kinds of things. The fact is we have to keep remembering that this is a political proceeding, not a legal one. So the normal due process rules wouldn't necessarily obtain. Uh, I think what you're seeing is the president has replaced a team that appears to have been, you know, more along the lines of the traditional legal team that wanted to put their head down and, and proceed with the case. He wants a little bit more of a public defense because it's a political proceeding. From the USA Radio News Ohio Bureau, I'm Dan Naraki. Thanks for listening. We are USA Radio News. All right, ladies and gentlemen, incredible guests on your radio. Usually I go over the... um, Previous day's broadcast right at the start of the show, but man, we had on Joe Lozito. Too good of an interview. We needed all the time we had for Joe last hour. Incredible stuff. And so I wanted to go over the uh, yesterday's news the network refused to use now. We had our guest on Mr. Lowell Nelson, campaignforliberty.org, ronpaulinstitute.org. And we talked about domestic enemies written by Ron Paul. Great, great article. We also talked about when fascism comes. It'll be wearing a mask, Ron Paul. And we tied that in to save the filibuster, ladies and gentlemen. Now, I'm not really a filibuster guy. 
But we've got to save the filibuster because they've destroyed all the checks and balances that make America great. See, the senators should be elected by state bodies, state officials, state elected legislative bodies, and not by the people directly. So the 17th Amendment needs to be repealed. But when they jettison that check and balance, then they say, oh, golly, we can't have a majority of senators voting on something. We've got to have a supermajority. And then we've got to have super senators with special powers. And then, oh, my gosh, to counteract that, we've got to have a filibuster. And, to counter- and we go on and on. And, yes, the Senate can make their own rules, but they're making rules because we have violated the checks and balances that make America great. We need to return to how America once was if we want to have true check and balances. And senators should represent state legislative bodies. And that way, the, state, the states, the 50 states, have a seat at the table for discussion. Right now, they don't. Anyway, I digress, except for to say that Ron Paul's points on this are very, very good. SARS-CoV-19, or whatever you want to call it, they call it COV-2, or whatever you want to call it, it's a SARS-19, has not even been proven to exist, ladies and gentlemen. The shocking research of Christine Massey points this out. John Rappaport with the article turns out 46 institutions have responded to her request, and none of them, zero, claim that they have found the virus, okay? If you isolate something, you can prove it exists. Inability to isolate it means you can't even prove it exists. That's where her research takes us. Now you say, COVID, same if there's no virus and you can't prove it exists, why are people dying? Well, interestingly enough, you look at the flu numbers, and they're way down. You look at all kinds of other illnesses and sicknesses, and they're way down. You take a little bit of numbers from all of these, and the point that she makes is that the coronavirus is not one single sickness. It's a bunch of sicknesses all together. Yeah. How are retroviruses isolated? We talked about that a little bit. We talked about the deep flaws of PCR testing. Gary G. Or Gary G. Coles. We don't recommend that anybody get tested for COVID, but if you do get tested... If you do get a PCR test, you need to know how many cycles they ran in that test. Also, you need to find out who manufactured your test. Because the Swiss policy research now says if a person gets a positive PCR test using a cycle threshold, in other words, a CT of above 35, the chance of the person being affected Infected is really only 3%. Bogus tests are like 97% if you go above 35 cycles. And if you don't believe me, that's a Fauci statement, not a Sam Bushman statement. It's an Anthony Fauci reality check. In the U.S., by the way, a PCR kit from Quest uses 50 cycles. Indio's test uses 45 cycles. Luminos test, or Luminex, I guess, 45 cycles for their test as well. Nomogen, 39 cycles. Thermo Fisher, 37 cycles. They're all way above, ladies and gentlemen. They're all way above the number of cycles that you're supposed to have. Why? That's a serious concern. We talked about the Czech mating of America, though. They're using the environment, climate change. They're also using a destruction of the middle class because of the COVID. People can't work. Small businesses shut down everywhere, and they're working on their way to a financial jubilee. Not a biblical one that God would have. Forgiveness of debts, honestly, is the 
Lord said, forgive thine, forgive thy debtors. But as a government forced jubilee to bring on tyranny, a satanic jubilee. So second hour, we talked to Dr. Scott Bradley, his collegiate series, homeschool series on this topic is called to preserve the nation. His website's freedomsrisingsun.com, but the good doctor broke this down with me. We talked about the GameStop squeeze, short squeeze, a huge lie con game. We talked about how J.P. Morgan traders had a guilty plea, and it boosts manipulation claim against the banks, cnbc.com. This is an article that came out years ago, 2013 article, highlighting how they got busted faking uh, this big paper play, paper trade stuff. And it's all backed by the fake money of the Federal Reserve, ladies and gentlemen. What was the year of Jubilee? What is that? Well, biblically speaking, it's an honorable thing. It's a forgiveness of debt. But in government, you've got the globalists launch a worldwide great reset, a.k.a. Operation Satanic Jubilee is what we're talking about. We also talked about the mask mandate signed by Joe. Border or Joe signs order requiring masks for anybody traveling in the United States from trains and planes and automobiles right on down to ride sharing services. I mean, Joe is out of control. He thinks he's a legislator. He ought to be thrown in prison for his abuse of power immediately, ladies and gentlemen. You say, well, Sam, previous presidents have done that forever. I know. And I'm not defending them. They're guilty, too. But Joe's the one in power now. And Joe's the one that we need to look at uh, in regard to his criminal activity. Just imagine if members of Congress decided they were going to be the executive branch and just start, you know, what if a member of Congress just said, I'm going to just start writing executive orders? Well, no, Sam, that's what the president's supposed to do. Oh, yeah? Look at your Constitution. Where does the president have authority to write executive orders and create law? All legislative powers are in Congress. Go read your Constitution. So if Joe can just run around and create executive orders, can every member of Congress do the same? And if not, why not? They're closer to at least lawmaking authority than, than, than um, Joe is. I know, Sam, but it's different. Oh, yeah, you tell me how it's different. Anyway, there you have it. That's a recap of the broadcast that took place just yesterday. It's available at LibertyRoundTable.com, LovingLiberty.net. Spread the word. First hour, though. I'm telling you right now, first hour, great radio. We had on Joseph Lazito. The story of how he went from being the average Joe to being dubbed the New York subway hero. The New York subway hero. My battle with evil and a spree killer. He wrote the book. It's a paperback. It's on Amazon.com. He wrote it in 2014. Incredible book that chronicles the story. And it really chronicles the unfortunate twist of the story. The cops sat there and watched it. did nothing to help Joe or anybody else for that matter. They were afraid they were cowards. And a Manhattan judge agreed with them and dismissed Joe Lozito's victim lawsuit where he basically said, hey, you know what? They left me out the dry. Two officers failed to protect and aid him, but the judge let him off. No wonder people hate the cops. Sad tale, but true. Uh, anyway, in a couple of days on the 12th, February the 12th, in 10 days, it'll be 10 years since the horrific event Joe experienced on that fateful Saturday morning. Our prayers are with Joe and his family. What an American hero. After it all, Joe does not have hatred in his heart. He doesn't hate the cops. Uh, he's a law-abiding citizen that loves his wife and loves his kids. And he says, that's the reason I'm alive today. I say the reason he's alive today is not only his in indomitable spirit, but his 
Well, he watched MMA fighting and he used an MMA move on the knifeman, stopped him. Thank heavens for that. But he's alive today, I believe, primarily because of his wife and children. They gave him the, quote, mojo uh, to stand strong and to jettison hate and to be grateful for every day that he lives. What a hero. In my mind, Joe Lazito is a hero. I mean, he's a hero because of what he did that day in the subway. But he's more of a hero because of his attitude and what he focuses on day to day. He's grateful for the nurses and people that took care of him. He's grateful for his wife and family. He's grateful for the people that give him a job. I mean, he's just a real man, a man's man, if you will. A man who literally um, is tough, as nails when needs be. His subway, you know, fight and take down of the killer proves it. But he's a man's man because he, you know, he attributes a lot of his success to his wife. He calls her the backbone of their family. I mean, this is a real man, baby. This guy gets it. What a hero. I want to see what more we can do for Joe. I don't know that I have any power to really make a whole lot of difference, but I'm sure going to try. I think Joe's an American hero is what I think. I think his story is riveting. Uh, But sad to say, ladies and gentlemen, the cops ain't learned nothing in New York City. I kid you not. NY girl. So New York City girl, right? Or a New York girl at least. Nine years old. She got pepper sprayed and handcuffed by the cops. It's a recent story. There's video out about it right now. And I guess what happened is there was uh, some kind of a problem at the home. So the cops came, tons of them. And this nine-year-old girl, I guess, was being combative and, you know, saying that she didn't want to live and saying that she was going to kill her mom is what they say. I don't know how much of that's true. They tried to get the girl in the cop car and she was kicking and they handcuffed her and then they just pepper sprayed her. Ladies and gentlemen, this is out of control. Out of control. As a parent, is receiving a faith-based, character-focused education for your children difficult to find? Do you believe that godly principles should be a central component in your child's education? Imagine a school where faith and integrity are at its center, where heritage and responsibility instill character. For over 40 years, American Heritage School has been educating both hearts and minds, bringing out academic excellence. This is the school where character and embracing the providence of a living God are fundamental, where students' national test scores average near the 90th percentile. With American Heritage School's Advanced Distance Education Program, distance is no longer an issue. With an accredited LDS-oriented curriculum from kindergarten through 12th grade, your children can attend from anywhere in the world. American Heritage School will prepare your child for more than a job. It will prepare them for life. To learn more, visit American-Heritage.org. That's American-Heritage.org. Scott Bradley here. Most Americans are painfully aware that the nation is on the wrong track and in dire straits. Unfortunately, most political pundits only nibble around the edges when they claim to address the issues. Even worse, many of the so-called solutions are simply rewarmed servings of what got us into the mess we currently face. And the politicians think we're so gullible and naive that we'll buy their lies that they have reformed and now understand where they led us astray. Unfortunately, the truth of the matter is that they simply wish to continue to hold power. The solution to America's challenges is found in returning to the timeless principles found in the United States Constitution. My book and lecture series will reawaken in Americans an understanding and love of the principles which made this nation the freest, most prosperous, 
happiest and most respected nation on earth. Visit topreservethenation.com and order my book and lectures to begin the restoration of this great nation. All right, Liberty Roundtable Live, hard-hitting news that I refuse to use. I am Sam Bushman. Joe Biden brazenly proclaims we should change the federal law so there's no right to work allowed anywhere in the country. No right to work, huh? They just want everybody on the dole, don't they? Literally, in my opinion, uh, Joe Biden bordering on treason right from the gate, right out of the gate, bordering on treason, lying about unity creating wedges everywhere. Biden took the unprecedented step of firing National Labor Relations, National Labor Relations Board uh, General Counsel Peter Robb right on the spot. Wow. New York City girl or New York girl nine gets pepper sprayed and handcuffed by the cops. This is a recent modern story this very second. And I look back to Joe Zito or Joe Lozito's uh, situation in 2011 and I go, have they learned anything in the last 10 years? I mean, why on earth are they pepper spraying and handcuffing a little girl? Out of control, folks. It's because the cops are out of control. Now, don't get me wrong. I am a member of the Constitutional Sheriffs and Peace Officers Association. I am uh, the operations vice president of the organization, so I get it. And I'm not anti-cop or anti-police officer by any means. But I'm telling you, if we want to restore trust with the public, we better start to create accountability. These people that these cops that literally did nothing to support Joe Zito or Joe Lazito. I mean, they're criminals, folks, but they got protected by the courts and by the system. Joe got hung out to dry. If we want to restore trust, we've got to stop this. Okay, these cops that literally tase and half handcuff a nine-year-old little girl, okay, they need to be stopped. We need to rid our police departments and sheriff's departments of these sheriff's offices, of these, do I dare say criminal cops? Certainly of these people that, that don't have the integrity to do what needs to be done. Okay, I don't know why you're pepper spraying and handcuffing a nine-year-old girl, but it's out of control, folks. All right, enough of that. But anyway, shame on them. Shame on them. And if we, like I say, if we want to build trust with the American people, we better start to prosecute cops that are out of control and do the wrong thing. We better not protect them. The more we do that, the more trust we will erode. The more we lose trust, the worse it'll get for cops. And sadly, I don't want police officers to be harmed in the line of duty uh, because people are mad at the cops. People shouldn't be mad at the police. People should be grateful. But the police have an obligation to clean house and get rid of the bad apples. If they want to build trust, that's what they'll do, and they'll do it soon. All right, non-voters. Registered Democrats. So two groups of people, the non-voter and the registered Democrats, are among those arrested at the Capitol protest on January the 6th. Hannah Blau, or Ballou, I don't know how to say her last name, uh, but anyway, she works for Breitbart, reports. Yeah, this is serious business, folks, because I told you right from the start that there's bad guys on both sides. There's good guys on both sides, too. That's what Donald Trump said at Charlottesville. And he got absolutely beat up for it. But Trump is right. There's bad guys on both sides. So now we find out it's not just Trump supporters. Were there Trump supporters that, that were wrong? 
and uh, you know destroyed private or destroyed property and um, you know created harm and violence. Absolutely, and they ought to be prosecuted. But I'm telling you right now, when you dig in, you begin to find out there were non-voters and registered Democrats both among those arrested at the Capitol protest. And many of these people pretended they were Trump supporters, but when you really dig into their past, they're Bernie Sanders supporters or et cetera, et cetera. They're not real Trump supporters. So we told you, and we'll tell you again, they're lying to you about the narrative on January the 6th. Lying to you. By the way, an 18-year-old college student turns his father into the FBI. Now, I guess the um, 18-year-old student said, hey, my dad's a Trump supporter and he's getting radicalized and I got a concern, I'm going to turn my dad into the FBI. But it turns out that this kid now, this teenager, 18-year-old kid, got $138,000 on GoFundMe now. So let me get this right. You turn your dad in for being a Trump supporter to the FBI. Yeah, tell everybody about it. You get $138,000 on Facebook. I'm sorry, on GoFundMe. 138k on GoFundMe. We can't raise 100k on GoFundMe if our lives depended on it. Yeah. I even offered to go to Washington and do a, a um, health care um, education seminar at the National Press Club to try to help people understand there are plenty of great alternatives to Obamacare, et cetera, et cetera. I couldn't even get you know, $1,000 raised. But this 18-year-old college student, after turning his dad into the FBI, gets $138,000 on GoFundMe. It's shocking. Shocking. But I thought I'd bring that story to your attention. Also, political commentator Steven Crowder. He's now going to sue Facebook. For treating conservative content unfairly. Yeah, he announced it on his website. And the lawsuit's going to be, I guess, in California or something. Well, Dennis Prager, Stephen Crowder, Larry Clayman, all these people are correct. Facebook needs to be sued. The only problem that I have with the lawsuits is I don't trust the courts. If you think the courts are going to take care of you, ask Joe Lazito. Or Lazito. He doesn't believe that, right? Uh, Lozito. Anyway, if you don't believe me that the courts aren't going to be fair, just ask President Donald Trump or former President Trump, right? Is he still president? Yeah, hard to tell, huh? All right, next piece. In addition to commentator Stephen Crowder suing Facebook, good for him. I pray for his success. He needs to team up with Dennis Prager and crew. President's action puts men and women, women and children primarily, at risk. Come on, man. Allowing men to women to use women's bathrooms is bad policy. The American Family Association, they put out a, um, oh, an email to me <clears throat> with a, um, oh, what do they call that, that you sign up for in your, par- oh, a petition. So the American Family Association put out a petition says president's action puts men and, and I'm sorry women and children at risk. Come on man, saying that this um you know gender bender stuff is bad policy letting men go into women's bathrooms and everything else and the American Family Association says please take action. 
send your email to President Biden now telling him that he has the obligation to protect women and children. Yes. Not put them at risk for sexual assaults. Amen to that. The President of the United States should not sanction a policy of inviting men to enter the women's restrooms and dressing rooms. Amen to that reality check. Send your email to Biden. I'm taking out president there. Okay. I agree that that, uh, Biden has the obligation. But do you have trust in Biden? He shouldn't put them at risk of sexual assaults. The president of the United States should not sanction a policy of inviting men into women's bathrooms, etc., Amen to that. Anyway, I thought I'd bring that to your attention. Good for the American Family Association. Shame on Biden. And it's really hard. Do you call Biden the president of the United States if you believe he was wrongly, wrongfully positioned there? Do you just let that go? See, I think you don't. I don't think you just let it go. I think it's wrong to just let it go. All right, now, Merck made an interesting move you say what do they do they decided that their vaccine should not be in the runnings anymore now some are saying Merck believes that it's better to get the COVID than the vaccine that's why they pulled the vaccine off the shelf or out of the test phase out of the runnings but now there's an article in USA Today article falsely flames falsely frames reason for Merck move is what they say and um, it's a big article, but they say that the Merck halted halted the development of its two COVID-19 vaccines. Yeah, pharmaceutical giant Merck dropped out, they say. That's interesting. Why would Merck drop out? Well, that's where the debate comes in. Mainstream press wants you to believe that people are falsely framing the reason for the move. I don't know the reason for the Merck move, so I'm not falsely doing anything. I want USA Today to understand that reality check. Pharmaceutical giant Merck recently dropped out and ended its COVID-19 vaccine trials. Now, we can debate why all day long. But I submit to you that USA Today doesn't know the facts either. So I submit to you that both groups, you know, are are kind of grasping at straws here. They say one article, however, distorted the company's reasons for dropping out. An article circulating online falsely claims that Merck halted the development of its COVID-19 vaccines because it was more effective to contract the virus and develop antibodies And that's why they got to scrap the COVID vaccine. But USA Today says that's not why. All right. But they're going to do fact checks and they say, hey, this group that published this is a questionable source, da-da-da. Well, I don't mean to be rude, but you know what? Just because you don't like the website that published it or just because you think the website doesn't have credibility, I don't think USA Today has credibility either. 
But either the facts are true or the facts are false. And I'm telling you the facts. Are you ready? Pharmaceutical giant Merck recently dropped out and ended its COVID-19 vaccine trials. Did you know that? That's a fact. Now, why they did it? I don't know. Okay, I don't know why it was done. But I know this. Um, they say we need vaccines really, 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 really bad. And if Merck drops its two trials, we're not going to have near enough vaccinations. If you believe their official story, right? And the Merck vaccines were supposed to be single vaccines, not double dose requirements, making it a lot easier to vaccinate more people. Furthermore, the, the vaccines um, were more stable, which means they didn't have to be frozen all the time. So these vaccines were way better, even though they weren't quite as effective. Why did Merck drop the trials? Why did Merck bow out? Why did pharmaceutical giant Merck drop out and end its COVID-19 trials? I don't know the answer, folks. I just don't. But I know they did. And I doubt they did it because, um, well, I'm concerned they might have felt like it wasn't near safe as effective as it could be. I don't know the reason why. But if you know we need vaccines so bad, why would you drop out? Especially if your vaccines had so many benefits that the other ones don't have. Would have to dig in. Find out why Merck dropped out. Maybe somebody ought to take them to court and see if they can get discovery, huh? Anyway, very interesting stuff indeed. Thanks for being alongside for the ride. Two hours of hard-hitting educational talk. Always at your fingertips. Six days a week on the Sabbath, we rest. Spread the word. Donate liberally. LibertyRoundtable.com. We declare we the people, along with the grace of the Almighty, we can and will restore America. We declare this nation shall endure. God save the Republic of the United States of America.